is an awful word. No one wants to be rejected. No one wants to be thought of as a reject. Rejection is the opposite of selection. Selection is kind of a nice word. For the most part, all of us would like to be selected. We would like to be amongst the few select. Jesus, in the eyes of many, in his own day, and in our day, Jesus was a reject. This chapter is a clear witness, as well as the subsequent chapters, of exactly that, of his rejection. He established himself in the position in the temple, teaching. But as he is teaching there, the leaders of the people come up and they want to know what his credentials are. What gives you the right to be in this place declaring these things? Who ordained you? Who appointed you? Who taught you? What school did you go to? Who gives you the authority to say the things that you are saying here? Who selected you? Who are your parents? What's your pedigree? So here you've got this contrast. Jesus is in the temple teaching the good news. That's what it says. He's preaching the gospel. And as he is preaching good news in his father's house, he is rejected. He is attacked. He is opposed as he is there. And brothers and sisters, it has to be this way. It has to happen exactly like this. This is what Jesus has been telling us throughout the Gospels, throughout his life, that this is exactly what would happen to him. He would come to this place and he would be rejected. He would be despised. Not only had Jesus said it throughout his life, but Jesus was only echoing that which had been said by the prophets century after century that he would be rejected. It was necessary for Jesus to be rejected because humanity needed to see clearly what we have done in rejecting God. And it was all made manifest, it was all made clear in this rejection of Jesus Christ as he comes into his own temple. So let's consider these things as we look at the passage today. Rejected servants, a rejected son, and a rejected stone. First then, rejected servants. In using the word servants, I am using the word that was contained in the parable that Jesus tells, the parable of the wicked tenants, that the, the owner of the land sent servants back to the vineyard. And we can understand that clearly. There's no real mystery contained in this parable that is here before us today. The servants that are being spoken of here is the prophets that were sent to the people of Israel. We're speaking about prophets when we say that servants were rejected. And when we're speaking about prophets, Jesus starts with John. John the Baptist, that is, as a prophet. So they come to Jesus and they want to challenge his authority. 
Who gives you the authority to do this? By what authority are you saying these things? Are you doing these things? There are many ways that Jesus could have responded to this challenge. He could have not said anything at all. We will see times in his life, especially in the days to follow, where he will not respond at all to charges that are made or to questions that are asked of him. He could have given a direct answer to the question, or he could have pointed to the miracles that he's been doing, the witnesses who have seen what he's been doing, to the words that he has spoken. He could have said, in effect, my father is the one who gave me the authority, but instead he turns to a question about John, as you saw in verses 3 and 4. He answered them, I'll ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or man? Where is it from? Now that is not an evasion of their question. It's actually right on point. The Scriptures clearly foretold that before the Messiah came, before the Anointed One came, there was going to be one who preceded Him, and that one was going to show the way, to make it plain, to prepare the way of the Lord. And if you acknowledge that John is that one, if you acknowledge in the way Jesus asked it, that John came from God, and John, in fact, pointed to Jesus and said, he's the one for whom I'm making the way, for whom I am preparing. He's the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Then you have acknowledged the authority. Then you have the answer to your question. This is the authority that I have. It is a prophetic authority as seen in the Word, as lived out in the life of John the Baptist. This effectively, what it does is pins the leaders up against the wall. They don't know how to respond to this. They're stuck, and they see that they're stuck. And the answer that they finally give shows both their rejection of John and their rejection of truth as well. They're ignoring of that which is true. They don't want what is true to be said. They want to maintain their own authority. They want to play politics. They prefer to keep an academic open mind. We don't really want to answer that question. After all, Jesus, the answer to that question is very nuanced. It's safe to keep an open mind, or so it seems to them. And of course, Jesus responds, well, <laughs> then I'm not telling you by what authority that I'm doing these things, but he moves on to the parable that he tells here and is recorded in other Gospels as well. He tells this story. He tells the story that these tenants had stewardship over land, over a garden, over a vineyard that was purchased by an owner who then went away for some time, and they had stewardship over it to produce fruit on behalf of the owner. Now, as we saw in Isaiah chapter 5, this is not a new story. 
It is not a new metaphor for the people of God. This would have been registered. It's used not only in Isaiah 5, but in a number of other places as well. So it would have made sense to them. They would have perceived the meaning of this quite quickly. Isaiah, there's slight differences in here. Isaiah saw the people as the vine planted in the land and producing a a, a bad fruit, a wild grape, instead of a cultivated grape. Jesus changes the, 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 the particulars of it slightly to make Israel the vine dressers instead of the vine per se, but the meaning is essentially the same. Bad produce and whatever produce that there was not offered back to the rightful owner of the vineyard. Servants or prophets, to to make it literal, so servants are sent, or if you want to say what the meaning of it is, prophets are sent to warn or to collect, and they are rejected. They are cast out. They are unheeded when they come to the vineyard, when they come to the people. This scene that is described by Jesus, it's outrageous. It would have been outrageous for anyone who read this story or would have heard this story to see the disobedience of these tenants, their disrespect, but it gets worse because it moves from the rejection of the servants to the rejection of the son. In verse 13 of the chapter, the owner of the vineyard says, what shall I do after the three had been rejected? What shall I do? Well, if I would have been able to to raise my hand at that point, I'd have gone right to the end of the story. Send in an armed party, get out those wicked tenants, whatever you want to do with them, throw them in jail, get them out, and get somebody else in there who will produce a good fruit and give you what is your rightful portion of that good fruit that would be produced in that land, in that vineyard that you've purchased with your own money but demonstrating, demonstrating unbelievable patience and tenderness towards these wicked tenants, the owner says this, no, I will send my beloved son. Some parables are hard to understand. You look at them and you you try to figure out who's who, what's going on, what's being said. This one is not hard to understand at all. When we read this phrase that the owner of the vineyard is going to send his beloved son, we know immediately what it means. The reader of Luke is immediately taken back to the baptism of Jesus and to the transfiguration of Jesus at which a voice was heard from heaven declaring, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Both of the incidents to which this takes us in our minds as readers of Luke, by the way, answer the prior question of who gives you the authority. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Who's that authority from? Maybe the tenants, maybe Israel, will respect the beloved son. 
surely. Okay, reject Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They have bad news anyway. Forget about those guys. But at least they'll listen to the beloved son when he comes. But alas, when the son comes, they see the heir. They see not his authority, but they see an opportunity. We kill him. We get rid of him. And this is ours. This is a way to establish our final claim on this piece of land and on the produce that comes from it. John, the Gospel of John, summarizes it with this very short phrase. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. At this point, I've got to pause and do a little parentheses in the sermon here, probably more of a bracket than a parentheses, because I have to address the question that kind of nags at you in the Gospel of Luke in particular as to whether or not Luke and Jesus are just plain anti-Semitic. I have to deal with this because they treat Israel pretty harshly. Clearly, clearly, Jesus is holding the Israelites responsible, culpable for their ultimate failure as tenants of the land, up to and including the death of the beloved son. But why? Why is he holding them responsible? We could give a number of biblical answers to that. I think one of the simplest is to give it in proverbial form that has already been used in the Gospel of Luke, which is to say, to whom much has been given, so much will be required. This garden, this beloved garden given by the beloved Father was given to the nation, to the Israelites, in a particular way. They were given the Word of God, the promises of God, the covenant of God, the temple of God, the tabernacle of God, the priesthood. They were given the sacrificial system. It was uniquely and particularly given to them along with the prophets, and they are therefore especially culpable for hoarding and for not producing appropriate fruit that would be offered back to the owner of the garden. That said, there are things that have to be kept in mind. First, and most obvious, Jesus and his disciples were Jewish. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. He's not avoiding it. He's right there in the center of town. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. His heart for them is clear. And much of the early church was made up of Israelites as well. And that is all true. But perhaps even more significantly, the culpability that is being described here is much broader. For not only was Israel a planted garden, but more foundationally than that, 
Adam and Eve were planted in a garden. This all sounds really familiar because it's where this whole thing got started. Planted in a garden with a command to be fruitful, to yield a good produce, and then to offer it back to God and to expand that which was good and right and beautiful. There, Adam and Eve's unfaithfulness as tenants or as vine dressers helps us to see that culpability belongs not just to Israel, but to humanity for the rejection of God, for the rejection of Jesus. And thus it is Paul's point, Paul's very point in the book of Romans, to say, therefore, there's no distinction. There's no distinction between Gentiles and Jews. Why? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are guilty of exactly the same thing, of rejecting God, of rejecting Jesus Christ. Paul's not anti-Semitic. He says, I would to God that they would come to faith, my brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith. Israel has a particular guilt, a particular responsibility on the leadership. But if you ask the question, who killed Jesus? The answer is us. It's me. It's you. We are the ones who have killed Jesus, who have caused his death. And by the way, that whole analogy now shifts because much has been given to you, and so much will be required of you. Rejected servants, rejected son, and a rejected stone. Jesus returns to Psalm 118, as I noted before we even started our service today, and he does so with these words, quoting, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You just sang the song. Did you forget that verse? Did you forget that line? That the rejected one is to become the cornerstone. Now, I did a lot of stonework in the past year. Nothing elaborate at all. No, no temple buildings or anything like that. But when you are working with stone, whether it's paths or walls, or decorating, or bordering, you are constantly making choices about the stones. You are selecting some and rejecting others. You look at their color, their size, their width. Uh, you look at how brittle, look at the striations, and you kind of wonder, if I tap this thing, if I hit this thing, is it going to break or is it going to hold up? And so there are some you take, and they look great to you, and there are others that you set aside. You reject them. Jesus is the stone that the builders looked at, held in their hands. Now, that's not really accurate because cornerstones are big. But in any case, he is the stone that they said, that's no good. Reject that one. Put it aside. Jesus and Luke have been working a small little theme on the metaphor of stones here. So 
also been in your hymnody today, three of your four hymns, if you're paying attention to the hymns. But he's working a metaphor of stones. When he entered into the city, they said, be quiet, tell your disciples to be quiet. He said, if they were quiet, the stones would cry out. And when he wept over the city and he foretold the destruction of the city, he said, not one stone will be left upon another. And when the leaders, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees are trying to consider from whom is John, they are afraid of the people, lest the people stone them. They had their eyes on the wrong stones. We come to this passage here, and we see that they failed to read that psalm carefully, and they missed the other stone, the rejected stone, which was to become the cornerstone on the one hand or the crushing stone. It's the cornerstone of the building or, and you can say this two ways, both are contained within verse 18, the one that people stumble over or the one that crushes if it falls on you. Now, time's not going to permit me, but if you would like to, with families or on your own this afternoon, to go back and see some of the magnificent ways that this theme is developed in Scripture, you can go to Isaiah 8, you can go to Daniel chapter 2, and look at descriptions of this stone and the results of it. But they looked at the stone, and they said, this one is useless. They despised this particular stone perhaps for its lack of strength, its lack of beauty, its lack of appropriate colors, perhaps it had a crack running through it, and they despised that stone. And they set it aside, and they rejected it. And that was a really, really bad decision. Because that stone was the stone that was selected by God. It was rejected of men. And God said, that's the one I want. From before the foundation of the world, and appreciate the foundation metaphor there, that stone was selected to be the foundation of the world. That stone. And that stone was the beloved Son of God. Everything in the building depends on that stone. Two walls are going to rest on that stone. Everything depend on, depends on the stone. And the rejection of that stone has two results. One is predictable, as we have read along here. If you reject Jesus, you will stumble and break apart, or you will be crushed. doesn't make any difference, Jew, Gentile, wherever you're from. makes no difference. You reject Jesus, and you are crushed the vine dresser, the vine, excuse me, the owner will see to it because he won't take kindly to those who reject his son. The other result of the rejection of that stone is surprising. There are rejected stones. You know where the rejected stones are from my stonework? <laughs> They're in a stream behind Emerson. <laughs> They're thrown away. They're useless. They're not good for anything. Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they're doing something. Maybe they're hoping a creek bed to develop or something like that. But they're useless. They're gone. They're rejected. 
The result of this rejected stone is surprising because the result of this stone being rejected is that a bigger house is built. Is that God comes along and says, I'm going to choose that stone and I'm going to build something far grander than that which you can imagine. Not some temple in Jerusalem, but a worldwide church. An earthly slash heavenly building with the names of the tribes of Israel on the gates and the names of the apostles put on the foundations with Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. In other words, what God says is, I've got a plan. I'm going to make my house a house of prayer for all the nations. Remember, Jesus came in and he had just cleansed out the temples. And he had said of the temple, my house shall be a house of prayer for the nations. Nations not in Luke, in the other Gospels. And that's what the stone is being put in place for. A new temple, a new work of God. The rejection, now let's go back to the vineyard metaphor instead of the stone metaphor. The rejection of that beloved son who was sent means, surprise, surprise, a bigger vineyard. A bigger vineyard given to and shared with others. And they hear that and they go, no, that can't be. God forbid that it should be like that. And Jesus says, yes. Yeah. That's exactly how it is going to be. In John 15, doomed human efforts at gardening, at tending vineyards, are rejected. They are rejected by Jesus, who then makes this statement. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And I suggest to you that that's a safe garden. It's a good bet that with Jesus as the true vine and God as the vine dresser, that a goodly fruit, that a delicious grape will be the results. And therefore, Jesus says, abide. Abide in me. Abide in that garden where I take care of all things. And if you abide in me, then you will bear much fruit. And so in his rejection, which was necessary and essential and prophetically foretold by both prophet and Jesus, in his rejection, brothers and sisters, is our selection. It had to be. He had to be rejected so that you could be chosen. William Hendrickson said this, his rejection results in the widening of the riverbed of God's grace. There it is. The widening of the riverbed because of the rejection. So what say you today? If you reject the son, you will be crushed. Therefore, kiss the son. 
believe in the Son, follow the Son, abide in the Son, and you will live. And to go back to the beginning of this, Jesus has been given the authority to make that declaration and to keep that promise. This is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Let's pray.